Welcome to Stocks of Scotch. Uh, this is episode 12, and we are recording this as of 9-20-2020. And today we thought it would be uh, fun to talk about cryptocurrencies. Everyone talks about crypto, and there is a lot of interest in it, and we do have interest in it as well. So hopefully uh, this episode does help. So we do have a Facebook page again and you can find any updates from us there also if you do like our content and the stuff we are putting out there please give us a review on apple Podcasts or spotify to help us reach more people so eric what are you drinking tonight what is your choice of booze uh i am still working on the bottle of hoban it's a it's a, a really really nice bottle so i'm enjoying it how about you uh, I am finishing off this bottle of Obin that I have, <laughs> and excellent. it is yeah, it's been an excellent bottle. It has uh, it has treated me well. But in the middle of the podcast, I'm probably going to switch to this uh, Glenlivet uh, Nadura straight from the cask, and it's about like 55% uh, of alcohol, so it's going to burn pretty hard. But uh, <laughs> I, I will power through it. Uh, so if anyone's listening, for our listeners out there, that is two votes for Oban. So uh, go out and get your bottle. Note this: we we have not been we 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 this that was not a paid endorsement. That was just a. Uh, I guess we are uh, very happy customers. Well, we, happy we will not be saying no to any uh, paid endorsements if they <laughs> wanted to <laughs> endorse us with some whiskeys. They, they don't have to pay us. You just have to pay us a whiskey. That's that's all we care about. Just kidding. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway. We're happy to provide an unbiased <laughs> review. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we start, uh, let's just say the disclaimer again. Um, we So this is just for entertainment purposes only. We are not investment advisors, and this is not investment advice. Just like how we don't take a cut of any of your investment gains, we are not responsible for any of your investment losses. Thank God. And do your own damn work. Before investing, speak with a licensed investment professional. Not sure why we still have that there, but oh, whatever. Um, also, in case you haven't noticed by our uh, love for Oban, we are drinking hard liquor right now. So uh, before we start talking about crypto, um, on our last episode, uh, we talked about IPOs and how they work, and one company in particular we did talk a lot about, which was Snowflake. And over the past week, uh, I think it was Wednesday, and that was what nine sixteen, um, I believe. Snowflake had their IPO, and it was a doozy. It was like whatever over a well. Uh, from its initial IPO price to what it ended the day on, it was like what plus a hundred percent. Yeah, I think it was. I think the official IPO price is like 120, if I recall correctly, and then it went up to I want to say 245, but maybe it was up to 260. Do you remember what the the peak was? I forget what it ran I up to. I felt like the peak was like 260, 270, but I, okay, I think okay. it went over like 300 before it was uh, released to the public, right? 
Uh, it may have in, in crazy pre-market. We could talk a little bit about the pre-market, but yeah, but yeah, go ahead. You know, it was uh, really funny because that last episode, you were explaining a lot about the mechanics of how IPO works, and I learned a lot from that as well. And uh, we saw in the news on how this IPO started working for Snowflake uh, that these like big investors like Buffett, for example, surprisingly, Buffett got into... Uh, Snowflake, well, Berkshire got into Snowflake, 240-something million dollars, which is like a drop in a bucket for him. And that that's like chump change for him anyway. Uh, but yeah, he did get into, uh, well, Berkshire got into IPO. Whether or not uh, it was Buffett that made the choice or um, his lieutenants uh, that made the choice, don't know. But yeah, they they were able to get into that 120 IPO price and then it just shot up to the moon there. I think I recounted that pretty okay, according to history. Yeah, for the first couple of hours. Yeah, so um, um, I think just to, to zero in on the Buffett piece, um, yeah, it's probably one of the lieutenants, not Buffett per se, but um, you know, he doesn't really do IPOs. Uh, I, think he, I think he may have commented negatively on IPOs in the past. It's probably um, overpriced, right? I think that's what uh, he said. Prob- okay, okay. Yeah, uh, it's probably overpriced. Sounds like it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, he could not, uh, whoever was at Berkshire could not avoid the easy, easy money to be made here. Just given the hype, I mean, just, you know, just simplistically, there's so much hype around the IPO that it was going to be a hot IPO. And an IPO is that kind of situation, it's a situation of scarcity, and then it's a scramble for everybody to get allocation, and then there's a scramble for people to buy it on the break whenever it opens, you know, when it, whenever it first opens for trading. Um, and that that didn't happen until, I mean, I remember looking and the day the, the so basically what happens is that they, they run the IPO process and then the investment banks who are doing the underwriting um, set the IPO price, which is set at 120, if I recall correctly. Um, and then the next morning, it didn't actually trade yet. It hadn't broken for trade. And um, that, I think, happened later in the day. Um, and when it did, or later in the morning, and when it did, there was a second scramble for uh, people to get paper. So when it, 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 I think the open was already like 240, if I recall correctly, or 200 something. So anyone who got an allocation at 120 was already seriously in the money. Uh, you know, on the very first trade that uh, that happened, and then the stock price kept going up. So, you know, these these folks are doing really well, and Buffett basically or Berkshire doubled their money, um, you know, on the on the first day basically, which is really not that bad. Um, you know, some people say you know use of kind of the 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 the, the quality aura that Berkshire brings to any company. Uh, was worth it to them. Uh, so they should have gotten something, some kind of benefit um, that may or may not have been. So usually if you're going to, if you're going to lend your name to something and you're going to make um, the IPO hotter in this case, then you should get some kind of economic benefit out of it. Extra economic benefit doesn't seem to seem, seem like it happened here. Um, the IPO price was walked up from Increased from the first time that Buff, yeah, Berkshire's name floated, and it, it kept walking up um, to the final price of 120, and that's I think the price that Berkshire paid. And they basically, but with the way the shares they bought were shares being sold by I think one of the prior CEOs or something, um, 
Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm sure that guy is doing handstands right now, even though he left, you know, arguably half the money on the table with, you know, the way the stock ripped, um, you know, at least through midday. Yeah, um, it, but it was a scary to watch. It was, it was huge. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was like, look, if it's a hot IPO and then it, it rips, I mean, you're you're probably not going to get in at the IPO price. A lot of people on mm-hmm. Twitter were like, yeah, I'm a big shot, whatever, and I didn't get an allocation. Um, and so um, should you buy in when it first trades? And it, if you did, you probably have lost money at this point because, you know, one of the questions we have is like, what is the remaining upside for um, for a stock like this at, at that kind of price? Um, and, um, you know, I think the answer is, you know, at, at 265, people started to, you know, get cold feet and uh, the stock has traded off uh, since then. I think the last close was probably in the, you know, we have computers, so we should... <laughs> I, I feel like it was like in the 220s or something like that. But yeah. I remember that we were talking about this also. And we were wondering, uh, like, what is the right price to pay for it? Because uh, I, I think you mentioned that their EV to sales was what, like, uh, at a hundred multiple, and or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, it, it's it's extremely high. Uh, even if it was a hundred multiple, like, if it's like fifty, that's still extremely high as well. Two forty, yeah, it, it closed at two forty, so. Um, that is quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, you know, it raises the question of like, well, what is, um, you know, if it's a two, if you could have bought a two forty, then how good do you feel it's going to go to three hundred? How good do you feel that's going to go to four hundred? Um, it's already a, a really, really, really frothy multiple. I remember. I mean, I remember. This is like me doing math while drinking, but I remember thinking, yeah, it was like a hundred times sales or something, you know. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that that may not be accurate, but um, you know, it's it's uh, yeah, like how do you, how much more upside is there? I know valuations don't matter, but uh, you know, maybe you know, at two hundred times sales, like maybe it does. So, um, yeah. So the so, twelve trailing months is about one seventy. Uh, EV to sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, in, in any case, for the folks who don't do this, uh, yeah, that is a lot. That is uh, a lot. Th- that is a big that's too, too rich for me. Uh, yeah. I would. Uh, I'm. I'm in violent agreement with you there. So yeah, um, I'm pretty sad. I couldn't go in at. A good price. Uh, I did not get into it because I just saw this thing just rip, and there was I had zero chance to even try at all. Um, I don't know how you feel about it, Eric. Um, I think it was yeah. I obviously I'm not, I'm not a stockholder. I didn't buy any. Um, I uh, look. I mean, it was good to kind of look at it. I mean. It was great that this was something which you know you kind of is kind of jumped out at you the name because it's something which your folks use and um, mm-hmm. it was perceived as what perceived really well. Um, you know, I think I had a couple conversations with people later. Um, one of them was one guy was saying, "Look, listen, look, listen, all these online stocks kind of break down into uh, compute, storage, and uh, 
God damn, I don't remember the third bucket. <laughs> and, you know, he was saying how, like, you know, Amazon, AWS and, and Azure and Google Cloud, they're kind of storage, but they really sell. What they really sell is compute. Um, you know, uh, you, you basically you, you rent a node from Amazon, AWS, and you do calculations and whatnot. And I, I was like, well, I mean, so it made me think about, like, well, where does Snowflake sit in this? Um, you know, they kind of, um, they're mostly storage, I guess, under that rubric, they're storage, and they charge based on how much storage you use. And I guess I don't really know how much they fit into the compute bucket. And what he was saying, my friend was saying, was like, compute is where the money's at. So um, that's that's uh, that's actually where these cloud infrastructure guys make their money. So mm-hmm. um, so I think uh, it kind of understood, underscored, like, how much more work uh you know we would have to do to get in the name but i mean at these prices i mean like you know jesus christ gonna have to reincarnate and come down from heaven and, and bless these guys with it you know it's just <laughs> i don't like i don't i don't know like at, at you're paying 170 times sales assuming you're okay paying a sales multiple which i'm not um 170 times sales i mean like so the business has got to like revenue's got to grow like eight times and okay um and these guys are growing, you know, say they're doubling, you know, every year and they keep it up. So taking three years to like grow into kind of a more reasonable multiple. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a, this is a kind of a, a big bet to me. And like, you know, I think uh, uh, there's just not much upside there. And there's certainly downside if like, for example, the market just decides like, yeah, you know, we're going to be more conservative. We're not going to pay for like, you know, what the company looks like three years out from now. We want to see what it looks like, you know, a year from now or something like that. So, you know, if the market kind of re-rates, kind of changes its opinion of what what it's looking for, then um, you, you kind of have a lot of downside. I mean, if the market says, well, yeah, you know, only worth, you know, it's only worth 80 times sales, not 170 times sales. And, you know, you're going to be down 50%. So, um, yeah, right off the break with the IPO where everyone, where it's probably not going to happen, but... You know, um, we're already in a tech market, which is kind of has seen some weakness off the peak. And if that doesn't reverse, then maybe they'll drag a name like Snowflake down with it. You're like, why should I pay 170 times sales for, you know, um, Snowflake when I can pay, I'm making numbers up, like, you know, 20 times sales for Google. Um, actually, it's not even true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 20 times EBITDA for Google. In fact, you could do that today and no one's excited by that. But but you know what I mean? You know, like as prices come down, other opportunities arise. And like, why should you pay a nosebleed valuation for a hot, hot, hot IPO? Um, you know, it's priced so high that, yeah, maybe it could come down. And uh, it has come down a little bit. I think you bring up like a really good point and it just feels like Snowflake has already like a few years worth of expectations just already priced in there and any deviation that is lower from those expectations will it's just all downsides but right now it just feels like all the upside expectations are priced in there. Yeah you know I had I had it on the tip of my tongue a couple of tech names which um they announced earnings, and uh, I want to say like CrowdStrike. Uh, I really hope <laughs> I hope that I'm citing the right example. But like you know, an example of like a cloud name where I think they actually beat expectations, and then they raised their guidance, and yet that wasn't enough, and the stock price was still down when they announced earnings or something like that. I guess stock CrowdStrike is still hanging in there, but um, um, it uh, you know, it, it does. It, it was priced for perfection. It delivered, arguably. 
really, really good results, and yet that wasn't enough. And so that's the situation you could, you could find yourself in, in this incredibly frothy uh, tech market. So even though tech is frothy, uh, we do kind of have another market that we want to talk about, and that is crypto. So Eric, uh, uh, I'm not as familiar with crypto as you are, uh, and I know you've told me that you're not uh, the biggest expert on crypto, but I, I'm sure you know a lot. I'm, I'm sure you're just being modest here. Uh, so what what exactly is uh, crypto? Uh, okay, well I'm gonna get, we're gonna get some hate mail from folks who actually know what they're talking about. But long story short, um, it is uh, cryptocurrencies are assets where you can prove um, ownership or your ownership is really um, tracked digitally. It's not tracked by physical possession because there's nothing to possess. And so that makes, um, and, and it's not in custody of some third party, like a bank, you know, holds money in your behalf. And so the bank can, you know, the bank is a useful intermediary because the bank is trusted. You know, they, if you, if the bank says you have this much money, then, you know, they would know, right? So that, that that's a trusted intermediary. So crypto enables um, transactions without an intermediary. Um, and um, and how they do it, we can kind of get into it, but it's probably not to so there are other people cover this ad nauseum. Um, but, uh, you know, what it does is that you can kind of create uh, these financial assets using um, digitally, and uh, you can demonstrate ownership or ownership works outside of kind of a centralized ledger, which is how, for example, stocks work. There is a centralized ledger <laughs> of who has ownership of what. Um, not, not not directly. It doesn't say like you know John you know John Q Public owns like five shares, but several layers of that will const will constructively give you you know you know your broker statement. Um, and um, and so that enables. Um, financial transactions that happen outside of, you know, kind of the modern current banking system. Um, and that gives, and that's interesting for um, a lot of people um, in those respects. So um, I think along with that, there are a lot of claims about what crypto can do, or there, there are a lot of, a lot of claims about the potential of crypto. Um, and they're really hard to, like a lot of future statements, or they're really hard to figure out like which part of this is going to happen or not. Um, but um, I think I've kind of given up on <laughs> trying to arbitrate with Cypress on which one of these are going to play out. But anyway, long story short, what is the landscape? There's Bitcoin, which is a granddaddy um, of these. Um, there's Ethereum, which is kind of a, um, a side project, which really is meant to do, um, in addition to kind of acting as a financial asset or a pseudo currency, um, it kind of it has an architecture to enable smart contracts. So um, if you if you have some agreement conceptually, right? You have some agreement. You fulfill the conditions of the agreement, then the smart contract should execute and pay you a certain amount of Ethereum. Um, and then there's um, kind of blockchain generally as a concept, which is also something a lot of people are working on. Um, and then there are a lot of altcoins out there, um, and um, there are. It's not that hard to start an altcoin. I think Litecoin, for example, LTC was just they literally took the 
the code base of, uh, you know, they took the code for Bitcoin and just changed the name and changed the numbers and voila, you've got uh, Litecoin. Um, and, uh, you know, these all kind of, uh, these all currencies, so they have different flavors, different implementations of how they work, different implementations of, uh, you know, cryptography, uh, different use cases, all, all different things. Um, some have come and gone. There's a new crop out there, which I don't really know or understand, um, but they all kind of have different variations. So I'll stop there. Um, you know, what, uh, what, do, what do you think about crypto or, or what questions do you have? Uh, so with crypto, uh, with all these altcoins, like different coins between like Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, all these other altcoins, is it fair, fair to say like their blockchain technology is probably like different between each single one of them? I think there are variations between them. Um, I think that's that's fair. And so how does the market kind of like view crypto? Uh, I think, uh, well, I mean, I know you and I, we've watched uh, Real Vision uh, and they talk a lot about crypto on there. Um, and they usually say like, what, Bitcoin is gold and Ethereum is silver? Uh, or yeah. they kind of use that imagery to kind of place onto both of those. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, the, um, the, the the Real Vision folks, Real Vision is a financial, um, uh, it is a website where they interview kind of smart people in finance, um, and it's really illuminating, uh, really, really helpful. Um, you know, they, they tend to focus on crypto and Bitcoin as a store of value, um, and they kind of look at it, you know, they, they're very skeptical of um, what's going on with the Fed. They think it all it portends, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but you know, certainly in the next five or ten years, very, very bad things for the US dollar. And so they want to hold things which are not, and all financial assets are kind of pegged to US dollar. If you're a US citizen, you know, all your financial assets are, are pegged to the US dollar, more or less, like stocks and whatnot. So um, what they think is that um, something which has value outside of the US dollar banking system has a tremendous um has the ability to sidestep the turmoil, which they think is coming. So they look at it that way. I think that's, that's a pretty valid way of looking at Bitcoin. I think another way of looking at Bitcoin, um, probably a little bit less cool to say is, you know, it's a way to move money around the world. And kind of, you know, a lot of, in the U.S., we don't really see it, but in other countries, they have capital controls. You are only allowed to, you know, um, move a certain amount of U.S. dollars out of the country and they monitor it, they cap it, and, and they make it difficult to take dollars out of, say, South Korea. And by the way, if you're in South Korea, you have a lot of Korean won, you want to go out of the country and spend your won, guess what? People don't really care. I mean, yeah, you can exchange it, but I mean, it's not, you know, it's hard to do business transactions in it unless you're dealing with the mother country. Um, and so if you want to leave Korea, well, what do you do? You take dollars, but the amount of dollars you can take out is capped by, um, you know, the, the Korean Central Bank. So you know, Bitcoin is alternative. And when I say Korea, I really mean China. China has, is kind of the granddaddy of all these things. And so um, there's a period of time where when China, the Chinese um, uh, exchange rate with the U.S., which is pretty much locked at seven, you kind of seven to one, um, when it looked like they might devalue the yuan, um, Bitcoin spiked up. And in, in particular, the price of Bitcoin in China spiked up. Um, you can only, you know, if you go to Hong Kong, there's a big jewelry trade and 
the joke is that, yeah, you know, a lot of that is mainlanders effectively, you know, having a way to take value, value out of China, take cash out of China. And Bitcoin's another way to accomplish that. Um, so it gets interesting for that. And not, not just China, but people in Russia, people in Venezuela, um, you know, if, if they're, if you're in a currency, an emerging markets country usually, and your currency is about to tank relative or you massively devalue, then gee, wouldn't it be a good thing to take your, you know, Thai bot, you know, denominated assets and put it into, you know, something that will not get devalued. And so that's, that's crypto. And, and the thing, I, I'm sorry, I, I missed a critical part, part of crypto. Um, they, they have, they usually create scarcity in the sense that uh, there's a, they, what they say is that there's a finite amount of any given currency. I'm not, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, if there are any currencies, like something like Tether, which is kind of a, a kind of a special case, they will create new Tether, but something like Bitcoin is capped, right? They're, they're not, they say very explicitly, there's only going to be 23 million Bitcoins issued between now and the end of time. So, um, you know, there's no constant devaluation of the existing, diluting of the value of the existing assets by creation of new Bitcoin. So, and, and that's kind of the concern people have about the U.S. dollar. My God, we're printing all these dollars. And so um, the U.S. dollar could very well devalue uh, relative to euro or yen or, or oil or, you know, commodities, what have you. So, um, you know, so, but Bitcoin, you know, there's only going to be finitely many of them. Um, and so there's a kind of scarcity component, which makes it attractive from a, um, a store value perspective. Um, I guess where are some other ways? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just uh, going to say like, and in that way, uh, Bitcoin acts very much like gold in the sense of gold. There's only a finite amount of gold on this earth, so you can't really make more gold. You can only find more gold. Uh, and that's kind of like how Bitcoin works, right? Pretty much, yeah. And you know, for example, gold. I mean, there's really not that much more gold coming out of the out of the ground every year. And so, the the you know the kind of incremental increase in supply of gold is is pretty small. Um, and Bitcoin is the exact same way, except that Bitcoin has a hard date where no more Bitcoin will be issued. So, like uh, in terms of like finding more Bitcoin, right? the rate of finding more Bitcoin is decreasing over time, just like gold probably is, where uh, you have more scarce places to actually look for, where you can't really find gold as easily as you used to be able to before. Is that right? I think yeah, that sounds yeah, very, right. Yep, yep. So the way, okay, so not all, not all 23 million Bitcoins are issued as yet. Basically, the way it works right now is that um, Bitcoin transactions have to be recorded by people um, um, doing very hard math problems to basically validate each transaction. And they're very expensive to do. So each um, um, the validators are essentially getting compensated by receiving new Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin protocol itself has a method of rewarding, um, uh, you have all these nodes cranking away and uh, every 10 minutes, one of them is awarded, um, I forget what it's called, but you know, it's basically the, the award for like doing the transaction. Uh, whoever gets it first um, validates you know, a stack of transactions 
and then gets paid by essentially everyone in the form of uh, new, new receiving new Bitcoins. And so um, that's a real business model. There's a company called Riot Blockchain, which is doing what like a lot of guys in China are doing, which is like, you know, they, they have a bunch of um, Jeep, you know, they have a lot of, you know, specialized processors and they use it to mine Bitcoins. And by mining Bitcoins, they mean um, doing these calculations every and every 10 minutes trying to solve a very hard math problem, which changes every 10 minutes. And when they solve it, they um, they validate a bunch of transactions. So that helps to, you know, that's how transactions work. And then they receive the reward, which is worth, you know, 10 coins times however, you know, whatever the prevailing price of Bitcoin is. So, um, you know, so it's, uh, so it's sort of like gold is that there's a small bit of supply being added constantly uh but it's really not that much in the you know relative to the amount of coins which have been issued right now and that supply getting added is getting smaller uh, as time goes on like uh i think to solve that same math problem uh 10 years ago uh as uh compared to solving it now you get less reward today rather than if you had solved it 10 years ago Yep, that's right. So at, at pre-programmed intervals, the reward halves. Um, and so, you know, the, of course, you know, the, the, the Reddit folks are on this, call this <laughs> the happening. And, uh, you know, and basically, you know, what it does is that, you know, the, the trickle of new coins coming into the market gets halved. And so historically, um, Bitcoin has rallied quite a lot after each of these um, halving events where the reward is halved. So the most recent one, the, the reward, reward was halved, I want to say, a few months ago. I mean, like two months ago, three months ago. Um, and Bitcoin is up, but it hasn't you know, rallied as massively as it has historically. Um, so there, there are a couple of thoughts around it. But uh, it generally, the argument people have starts with this, oh, you know, supply is being reduced. So certainly the new supply being put into the market is reduced. Uh, you know, and that can, under certain circumstances, result in... Um, kind of a you know squeeze where the price goes up because there's more demand than than supply. And that reduction in the supply or the addition of the new supply, that's all preordained. Like no one else can change that. No bank can change that. Like the Feds can't change that. The uh, European Central Bank can't change that. The Chinese Central Bank can't change that. Uh, no one else can change that. So that's really one of the reasons why it's called uh, decentralized, right? Yeah, yeah. There's no central authority to um, to kind of rewrite the rules or over that. I mean, there is a concept of, um, uh, I mean, generally speaking, if 51% of um, nodes uh, cranking away, each, each of these computers cranking away on Bitcoin is a node, um, and there's a concept of a 51% attack where, and you've seen this in some of the altcoins, um, where like someone gets, you know, gets over 51% of the hash rate. In other words, aggregate computing power of, of the whole Bitcoin community. And uh, they can use that to start to rewrite the rules. And I don't know, um, you know, which rules can be rewritten with Bitcoin or not. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a theoretical way. But, you know, you know, getting, getting, there's so much, there's so much hash rate. In the world right now, and a lot of it is in China with a couple of big miners. But you know, conceptually, that that's protection for you against um, 
you know, kind of a single party devaluing Bitcoin or like, you know, rewriting it so that, you know, you you get diluted. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that that decentralization is by design uh, to prevent someone from you know, kind of arbitrarily, um, you know, changing the rules of the game. I liked how you talked about um, a lot of central banks, and it just reminds me, um, I think it was Hugh Hendry, your spirit animal, he was talking about how he got uh, the ECB bank uh, rates, they're, they're so low that he wanted to like get a loan from uh, to build some kind of complex in the Caymans, or was it the Caymans? I, I can't remember where he lives right now, uh, wherever he lives, one of those tropical islands. Um, he wants to get a bank loan and one of the French bank loans asked like if he wanted a loan of several million dollars for like zero percent interest and he was saying like yeah yeah I, I think I will like that or something like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it, it just kind of goes along the lines of uh, all these world central banks are doing strange things um, really crazy things uh, I mean our the feds are doing something crazy. The ECB is doing something crazy. Japan has been doing something crazy for a long time. China has been doing something crazy. Uh, well, what's your take on all that and, yeah, just in general? Yeah, so for folks, you know, Hugh Hendry ran a very bearish hedge fund for years and years, and finally he just gave up through the towel in. And now he, and then he kind of disappeared, and then he kind of moved to St. Bart's with his family. And for those who don't know, St. Bart's is one of these Caribbean islands where rich people go and drop, you know, park their yacht in the harbor and drop anchor and whatnot. Um, and so he became a landlord. He, he bought some property and he bought a landlord and he went to get a mortgage. And uh, St. Bart's, I guess, is a French island. So they're, uh, you know, it was a French bank and they're handing out free money. They're like, hey, you want to uh, you want a five million euro loan at like I forgot it was like two percent or something like that. And he was like, sure, let me grab with both hands. Um, and um uh, <laughs> You know, you kind of see that a lot with, uh, you know, the, the way, um, it, it, you know, we can kind of go on and on about what monitor or how monetary uh, monetary policy works. But, you know, long story short, um, you know, central banks are executing, you know, what's called monetary policy. Um, they have pretty much only one tool, which is the lower interest rates. Um, you know, they've got or, or they can buy government bonds. Um and by lowering interest rates, they uh, make it easy for banks, easier for banks to uh, give out, uh, you know, give out lots of really low interest loans. Um, and unfortunately, though, the reality is that these low interest loans don't go to everyone. They go to some people. Right. So, you know, banks today are still heavily regulated. They actually don't really want to give out, um, you know, they, they still they're happy to lend out money. but um, they're so, you know, they, they just can't take any risk. So um, I think, you know, what you'll see is that, you know, how much of that trickles down to your average homeowner? Well, I mean, it it does, but the real beneficiaries of the mortgage are kind of, quote unquote, safe borrowers. And there'll be someone like Hugh Hendry, who is has got like a lot of wealth and uh, is buying property on a fancy Caribbean island and he can get a cheap loan. And, you know, if you or I tried to get a, you know, a, Two percent mortgage. I don't think that would happen. At least not yet, anyway. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Maybe one day. That that's a dream, right? 
I think the Fed may, as the Fed brings rates closer to close to zero, brings a negative, you might see uh, you might see uh, U.S. mortgage rates kind of come down. I mean, I've seen mortgage oh, rates around like 2.8, I think. Um, oh, really? Okay. Around the area? Yeah, so we're, we're getting there. Uh, I think that's kind of scary to think about also because I remember looking at them being at least like 3.5 or a little bit above that which makes sense, I think, but. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I thought mortgages were down to three, but like, I think you're right. Um, I'm looking at bank rate and there's someone lending out 15 year fixed at 2.6%. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah. So uh, um, I, uh, it's, you know, mortgage rates used to be a lot higher than that. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I can say, uh, you know, um, so, but, but, you know, I think, um, you know, so central banks are, you know, just to recap a little bit, they are issuing a lot of their own currency. Um, you know, with the Fed, it's really easy. They actually just open up, you know, push a button on a computer um, and they've, quote unquote, created more money. Um, and the idea is that, uh, you know, in their, in their minds, that money goes to the banks and then those banks will go lend it out. Um, and what we were describing was like the Fed has done it, ECB, European Central Bank has done that. Uh, but the banks themselves are not really willing to make new loans. I mean, they're kind of reluctant. So, um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, we haven't seen a lot of inflation. You know, money is created actually when the banks create loans and they just have been reluctant to do it. They're kind of just sitting on the, the money they get from the Fed. They're called bank reserves or, you know, central bank reserves. Um, and they're just sort of sitting on it. Uh, they get interest on it. They get something called IEOR, interest over excess reserves. Um, so it's, you know, they don't, and for that, they don't take any risk. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and there's, there is a, I hate this word, but there is a trickle down that is needed to happen before, you know, all that free money from the Fed makes its way down to um, the average Joe or Jane um, or, we should probably, I should probably pick more ethic friendly, you know, more ethically aware names than that. But, um, you know, uh, it's just one of, we, we can kind of rant and rave about central bank policies, but that's probably grist for another, maybe another podcast. So uh, if, if I could just go back uh, a little bit about uh, what you were saying about the Fed, about them just like pushing button and all of a sudden uh, they created money. So that's basically... Uh, well, what's happening is uh, that they, quote unquote, print money, but they're not printing physical money. It's just a lot of uh, digital money. Is that is that right to say? That's right. And in particular, the digital, the digital money they create is not the same digital money you have in your bank account. They're actually two different things. And so one does not automatically become the other. And so that's uh, one of the reasons why that uh, crypto could be a good kind of hedge against what central banks might be doing. Uh, and that's uh, is that sort of your viewpoint as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, OK, so right now, so far, it, yeah, the money hasn't made its way from the central bank to the banks to kind of the, the real economy. But it can um and um you know when it does it's probably inflation kind of moves slowly and then all of a sudden uh and so i think in the fear is that yeah you know there is some cost to 
print, you know, kind of creating all this new money, creating all this new money. And, um, you know, traditionally it was, well, uh, the currency devalues and the currency devalues and um, people, savers um, lose all their savings and people, um, this tremendous economic disruption. Um, there are all these tales of hyperinflation in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, um, before that, Weimar, Germany. So Germany before World War II, before the rise of the Nazi party, they had explosive hyperinflation it ruined the economy and it kind of set the stage for you know the nazis take power that's sort of the boogeyman that everyone has out there um it, it's terrible people you know in addition to destruction of economic value people are starving in venezuela right now um as the economy has totally melted down so um you know and so is that going to happen as the fed prints trillions and trillions of dollars well probably not but you could easily see a scenario where they, you know, where the value, the, where the dollar devalues. Um, you'll see it first when you travel. And all of a sudden, traveling seems a lot more, hotel rooms seem a lot more expensive, or airfare seems a lot more expensive. Um, it could, you could see it in like, you know, price of oil, where all of a sudden the tank of gas gets really expensive, kind of indirectly. Um, but, uh, you know, even worse is if the value, US dollar, um, is devalued so much that people don't want to use it as the quote unquote reserve currency. So in international trade, uh, much of it almost, I want to make, I'm going to make a number like 90% international trade is like denominated in US dollars. Um, that's what people want to get paid in. So you need dollars to transact, inter, you know, to like buy oil if you're China. For oil is all of US dollar trade, for example. Um, and so no one wants Russian rubles, no one wants Chinese yuan. Uh, no one wants Japanese yen. They don't. They don't want euros. So Saudis want U.S. U.S. dollars. Uh, and so, if U.S. dollar gets de- you know debauched so much, then you know it, you know the U.S. may lose its quote unquote reserve currency status, and that'll have tremendously negative impacts on the U.S. dollar and the American way of life. And one way to stay out of that carnage is to own something like gold or Bitcoin. So that that's the argument for, uh, or that that's what people say, like you know, their interest in Bitcoin related to, you know, their distrust of the Fed or you know, their fear for the U.S. dollar. That's kind of a nutshell what they're worried about. That sounds all very interesting and uh, it, it it makes sense, but it's also very like convoluted, and I I don't think uh, any of us know like the full picture of it but what if we've been talking a lot about bitcoin uh but what about ethereum is, is ethereum more of a i guess in layman's term um more like use cases like it's more ap- applicable for use cases than bitcoin is yeah i would have um so i i'm, I'm a little bit on shaky ground here i don't know ethereum as well as as others um much you know i, I despite a self-project to own ethereum to like you know understand it um probably know a little bit less but the one of the problems of bitcoin is that the in order to record a transaction it costs you a fee to to do that uh, which is you don't have to you know there there are fees in exchanging money with us dollars but you know most of the time when you get a paycheck and direct deposit pay your credit card you're not you're not explicitly paying a fee well in uh bitcoin you are um Ethereum, kind of same concept. You're paying gas, kind of same idea. Um, the, but 
but yeah, the idea is that it's supposed to be more practical than Bitcoin. It has the ability to kind of have financial contracts like built into the architecture. I, I mean, I would say though that that's the idea. I mean, as far as I can tell, um, that capability is still being built out. It's still ongoing. It's still a work in progress. I think there are still like, whereas I think like there have been no changes to the Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin code uh, since it launched because whoever did it did a really good job. I think Ethereum has had a couple of, um, you know, revisions. Um, but uh, yeah, but you know, it, it's 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 been up. Um, I think the most recent use case is something called um, uh, DeFi, um, which is kind of the latest thing to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, traction and DeFi, de- decentralized finance, but I'm going to totally butcher it. But I think like the, the the most simple or the attractive, the simplest use case right now is like they will actually pay you interest on um, on your. I think it's your Ethereum um, to um, you know if you put it on the DeFi platform, and um, you know you have to scratch your scratch your head and say, is this a Ponzi scheme? Is this for real? But um, I think uh, what I was told was like, yeah, you know, the interest on that platform has grown a lot. And that's one of the things which has driven Ethereum demand in the past couple of months. I feel like investing in crypto is a little bit different than uh, investing in like company stocks in terms of uh, in my mind. When you invest in crypto, you have to look at other macro environments, uh, macro environments being like uh, what the American feds are doing, what the ECB is doing, um, what the Chinese Chinese Communist Party is doing. Uh, so it's kind of, it feels different. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Is it more like macro or uh, more it's, of a individualistic kind of thing? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, you know, the eternal question is what makes cryptocurrency prices go up or down? I mean, I still think fundamentally you know, all the arguments we've been talking about so far are more long-range macro arguments, um, and uh, I think the in the short in the short term, this is a totally speculative asset. Um, you know, I think the people, a lot of people who own cryptocurrencies are speculators, and when the markets tank like they did in March, um, they got to sell stuff for cash, and one of the things they'll sell is uh, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. And if they're selling, other people will be like, oh, geez, I got to get out, too, because the price is dropping. So um, that part's unavoidable. Um, I think, you know, there, there, there have been arguments in the past that, like, Bitcoin will protect you as a kind of a hedge against um, that kind of, you know, kind of give you some countercyclical assets, you know, that are not correlated or uncorrelated to the market. I think that's totally wrong. I don't even think that's true for gold. But. You know, there there are short periods of time where, like, yeah, it's a totally correlated asset to everything else. Um, and the hope is, like, yeah, you know, when, you know, the when the storm passes, it'll kind of revert. You know, it'll it'll be free of that kind of correlation. But it will happen um, if people just decide. You know, you know, there aren't that many buyers for any particular reason. There are a lot of sellers that happen for no reason, and crypto can crash. I mean, a flash crash. 10% in an hour or a couple of minutes, no problem. And I think one of the, you know, we'll talk a little bit about how to own and buy cryptocurrencies, but that's one of the things you got to just sort of like, just just accept like, yeah, you know, this thing could be down 50% and you will have no idea why, uh, but you're holding it for, you know, this sounds a lot like owning Snowflake stock, but like, you know, you're owning it because there'll be some point in the future where it'll be worth more than what you paid. 
and there'll be a lot of bumps in between. Um, those bumps could be down 50%, 75%. So um, I think, uh, you know, that's just something you have to be, you know, accept uh, before getting involved in cryptocurrencies. So would you categorize, like, owning cryptocurrencies as, like, investments or holding assets? Um, I think, like, investments, uh, when I think about investments, it's more about generating returns, uh, like profits, and assets more like gold in that sense. And it feels like crypto is more like uh, holding assets rather than an investment um, thing. I mean, I think people look at it as an alternative currency. Um, you know, people, um, well, I mean, okay. So um, a lot of people, when they say owning investments, it means something which will kind of has some ability to continue to grow value. So usually it's, you know, generate cash or like, you know, make, or, you know, make itself more valuable over time. That's what the compounder bros are, you know, trying to, trying to capture. Um, gold is not going to make more gold and owning more crypto, unless you put it on DeFi, I guess, is not going to get you more crypto. Um, but people think about it as, and instead of an asset, they think about it as a currency. Um, so, as, you know, their as, assets come, you know, their investments, their assets, and of those assets, there are investments and currencies. And, uh, you know, I think people look at, um, um, you know, kind of crypto, often they look at it as an alternative currency, as, for example, an alternative to the U.S. dollar. Um, and so I think people say, you know, Warren Buffett says that, you know, this thing doesn't generate any cash. I mean, it doesn't, but I mean, neither does gold, but that's not why you're buying it. You're buying it because, um, you want to, you know, diversify your exposure away from your, your native currency or, you know, the usual basket of currencies, which are all issued by central banks who are all doing crazy things. So you know, maybe you're not cool with the craziness and you think it'll end badly and that's why you don't gold or crypto. So this all sounds great to me. So Eric, uh, I've actually asked you this before in the past, but uh, I was just wondering if I can ask this again for all of our listeners. So how can I start investing crypto? Um, there are a couple ways to do it. I mean, I'd say that the easiest ways are to go on to uh, the Cash App, um, <laughs> which is issued by Square, and they'll allow you to transact in Bitcoin. You, know, you put money into Cash App. I have I have Cash App. I never, never put money on it. Um, but or I if maybe Venmo has Bitcoin capability at this point. I don't remember. But um, no, no, I don't think it does. Maybe it's just Cash App. Um, but um, you can buy it. The problem is you can never transfer crypto out of the Cash App ecosystem. So. I think for those who want to just, you know, kind of speculate on the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum, that's one way to do it. I think Robinhood maybe has a function. I can't remember. They probably do. Um, but you can never take it out. If you want to actually, but if you believe in all the things people are saying about independence from the U.S. dollar and, you know, potential failure of the U.S. dollar as reserve currency and, you know, possible reset of the world's entire monetary system, banking and monetary system, then you kind of need to um, have the capability to take your money out of, um, uh, take your money off of whatever brokerage or exchange and, and move it into your own wallet. Um, and and so, and then on top of that, um, you need to, it needs to be an exchange where, that, that number one permits that, but number two, 
allows you to, um, you know, take U.S. dollars, assume, you know, and um, buy Bitcoin with it or buy Ethereum. And so that kind of limits it down. I'd say there are a couple of exchanges which fit this. There's one called Gemini. There's one called Kraken, Kraken, Kraken. Um, but, you know, probably the biggest one of them all is called Coinbase. And for a New York State resident, I think Coinbase is the only uh, crypto fiat money exchange uh, which is approved, allowed to operate in New York State. So I use Coinbase. Um, Coinbase comes in two flavors, regular and pro. Pro is a little bit fancier, but it's kind of the same thing. Um, but yeah, you know, you you open an account, you give them your driver's license, um, you set up your two-factor authentication because you absolutely have to, uh, and you link up your bank account, and then you can transfer money to um, to your Coinbase account. And once it's there, you can use that to buy uh, whatever uh, cryptocurrencies they own. Um, and what you can do is you can use your US dollars deposited there to buy Bitcoin and then you can transfer Bitcoin that the Bitcoin to a different uh, to your wallet, a personal wallet or it could be a wallet at another exchange. Uh, so, for example, um, for giggles, I think I moved a Bitcoin over to Binance, which is probably one of the bigger Chinese brokerages. And um, I, I did that because I wanted access to some of the. Uh, scummier altcoins, which are not offered on Coinbase. Uh, so that's one way to do that. And But every time you transfer, just remember that you're paying a fee and you pay a bigger fee if you want your transaction to be recorded quickly. So uh, you mentioned like some of those uh, coin exchanges like Kraken, Gemini, Coinbase. Uh, so I was wondering, what's the... Uh, difference between them uh, for our listeners um, and what should they be kind of like looking out for when they're trying to choose a an exchange if they have the choice of all three um you should look at the fee structure that they charge um i think way in the beginning coinbase the trades were kind of free either maker and taker trades i think the maker trades were free that's not there anymore. Um, and so I think all of them will charge like a half a percentage point per transaction, which um, is annoying, but it is what it is. Um, I think that's probably the, I think that's the primary difference that I look out for, but you know, unfortunately I'm not allowed to have an account on, you know, Kraken or Gemini. So I'm actually not a, you know, I'm not actually sure about the minute details. Um, I think, you know, one of the things, some things you're looking for are, can I open an account? Um, you know, um, uh, are my assets segregated? If the answer to all that is no. Um, you know, have they been hacked in the past? How good is their security? Hopefully pretty good. You know, hacking exchanges is one of the reasons, you know, it's kind of the wild west days of crypto early in the beginning. But um, if anyone remembers Mt. Gox, um, that was a hack of an exchange. Um, you'd really like to avoid that. Um, that's a good way for the exchange to fail and for you to be, you know, SOL. Um, you know, um, how, what else would I look for? Um, I think it's really, yeah, it's just fees and security are kind of what you're looking for. You know, if you want to do transacting like weird altcoins and, you know, Coinbase doesn't do all of them, Kraken and Gemini might do more. I don't really know. Uh, so that might be another one that you have in mind. Like, for example, um, 
you know, like Monero is supposed to be harder to trace for law enforcement trace. So obviously those folks who are interested in not being traced will may tend towards that particular product. Um, I can either confirm or deny any, you know, whether these claims are true, but, you know, sometimes people have, you know, a specific or, you know, um, there could be a crypto coin which you like because you read their white paper, har, 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 and uh, you kind of think that this is a different bootstrap and it'll be better. Um, and guess what? You know, those newly launched altcoins are not things which are typically available through Coinbase, but might be through some of the other guys. Um, so those, I think, are kind of some of the key differences. Also, another part of this is uh, wallets, I think, right? So there's digital wallets and hardware wallets. And I know you've talked to me about wallets and you uh, basically recommended me to buy a Trezor wallet. And I do have one hanging on the side of my computer. And uh, it, it does work well, I, I do have to say. But what, what's your opinion on w different wallets? Yeah, I think every every self-respecting cryptocurrency um, holder has to have a hardware wallet. Um, it's and just to just to be precise, though, it's not like your bitcoins are being transferred to this device. Your your device has a Bitcoin or whatever, in this case, Bitcoin address. Um, and um, it it kind of, which is a long number basically. And this particular device is tied to a particular wallet number, which is now your wallet. Um, and so, and it generates the outputs which you need to use the wallet. So the wallet, exist in the blockchain ledger, which is there are billions of copies of <laughs> there are millions of copies of ledger flying around. Um, but basically that all say like, okay, wallet this has this much. I'm, I'm I'm totally butchering this, but you know, conceptually the record of who this whole decentralized aspect, the record of which wallet number owns what is in the ledger, but the ability to move coins out of a given wallet number uh, requires uh, some cryptography keys and the hardware wallet will facilitate that process. So I have a Trezor. There's another one for any name I don't recall. Uh, <laughs> I think it's Ledger. Yeah, okay, I'm okay. sure it's Thank Ledger. Um, they kind of all work the same. So um, I don't know if there's a difference. So the, the products are probably innovated. Um, you know, I, I have a Trezor. I will not disclose the location of it. So you should probably move your, uh, you should probably hide your, Hide your treasure and hide. There's a there's a 20 word key uh, which you need to hide, and that needs to be. Um, if you lose that, you're SOL. So you really need to make sure you don't lose that, but you need to make sure it's in a place which can't be stolen. You know, no one else can read it. Um, and uh, um, I think it, it's good because again, if you believe that like the shit is going to hit the fan, um, if your bitcoins are stored on Coinbase, what's stopping the government from seizing Coinbase? nothing um and then you lose your bitcoins or your bitcoins are kind of held in your name indirectly by someplace like coinbase and if you really 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 you know, want to indulge you know the prepper the inner prepper in you is going to want to take those bitcoins off of coinbase and move them somewhere which only you control and that's where these wallet hardware wallets come in um i would also say if you're really going to do this for all the above, um, there used to be a lot of um, 
hacking of mobile phones and people stealing cryptocurrencies based on that. So um, the typical advice is um, open up a Google Voice account and use that for your second factor authentication because um, there, with a Google Voice account, there's no humans involved to who can transfer your phone number away from you. Whereas if you have use your Verizon or AT&T cell phone number, yeah, there have been really shady cases where it seems like someone paid off an internal um, you know, telecom employee to move ownership of a phone number to some hackers, some Bitcoin thieves, basically, and um, use that to uh, um, and then take over your take over your account and steal your coins. I think, for example, there was a recent hack of Twitter, and uh, one of the I got I, someone got arrested for it, and one of them was a kid in um, or the main one was a kid in uh, Florida, and his he was previously involved in a sizable Bitcoin theft where he allegedly stole like, I don't know, make a number, 20 million of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies from someone by this very means, by basically stealing his um, stealing his phone number. So, and then hijacking the two-factor authentication process. So um, when you do all that, at least do the, do the Google Voice thing and uh, uh, hopefully that'll, uh, you know, make things, uh, that'll give you some extra layer of protection. Yeah, so, sounds good. Uh, I, I was planning on taping my butthole together, holding my wallet, but uh, that that sounds a lot easier than doing that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so yeah, that that's kind of our viewpoints on crypto. Uh, it's a lot to kind of, I guess, digest. And we'll be back sometime in the future hopefully next week maybe not uh don't count on it we have other stuff to do unfortunately other than this podcast if you do enjoy our podcast again please do give us a review i am your co-host kentaro and i'm your other co-host eric and have a good night folks <laughs>